0: You are listening to the Life Church Podcast. To learn more about Life Church, including our gathering times at Fishers, Eagle Creek, Noblesville, Pendleton, or our Life Crew online, visit us at LifeChurchIN.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Micah Beckwith. Well, good morning, Life Church. How are you this morning? Yeah, it's good to see everyone. Uh, I'm not Pastor Derek, so uh, if you're wondering what uh, what happened today, Pastor Derek is preaching over at Noblesville. So I'm I'm the campus pastor at Noblesville. So I got the privilege of coming here, and I love it. You guys have a a great community growing here. It's awesome. It's fun to see what the Lord is doing, and and we are excited as a as a church to be uh, one church, multiple locations. So you may see a little bit more movement within the campus pastors kind of moving around a little bit. And and, and that's just kind of the heart is because we want to all, y- all everyone to know that we're in this together. It's not Fishers separate from Noblesville and Eagle Creek and Pendleton. It's God's doing an amazing thing at all of our campuses. And so thank you for letting me come and be a part of this uh, worship service today. But. Um, we have, uh, just so you know, you know, God is, God is, I'm excited because God has put us in a place for just a time as this. He's put us in this season for just a time as this. I know Pastor Tina made reference to all of the things that are happening in the world that are, it's crazy. It's chaotic. It's dangerous. It's, I mean, look what's going on in Sudan right now. And they're evacuating Americans from the embassy because there is evil in the world. And you have to say sometimes, well, it's, it's what do you want me to do with this Lord? And I believe God is saying flashlights that are bright work the best when it's the darkest. Right? Isn't that true? Who who turns a flashlight on in the middle of the day? Right? When the when the sun is shining bright and, and nobody nobody but when that flashlight is needed most, it's when it's the darkest. And and I think we, you know, we're surrounded, the Bible says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And I, kind of, I go back and I wonder, I say, many times I think, okay, what are the, what's the cloud of witnesses? What are they saying right now about us? What is Paul saying about the church of Jesus Christ in 2023? I think Paul, I'm, I'm sure he's glad where he is right now and wouldn't change that for the world, but I think there's probably a little bit about his spirit where he's like probably a little jealous that we get to be the church of Jesus Christ in 2023, you know, Paul had to walk 40 miles to tell two people about Jesus Christ, right? Can you imagine Paul with a Twitter account, right? <laughs> You're telling me I can, I can reach a million people with just my two thumbs? Are you kidding me right now? And yet we take it for granted. We say, oh man, it's like, there's never been a time as bad as this. No, there's always been times as bad as this. And there will always be times as bad as this until the day Jesus comes back and writes everything. Amen? And until then, we get to be the ones who carry the message. You get just a few short years. You get 80 plus years if you're lucky, okay? 100 years maybe. We got a guy at Noblesville campus, his name is Bob Mann, he's 96 years old. He's kicking, he's not going to be kicking that much longer, okay? I mean, I'm just saying, again, I love Bob, I've told him this, like he's, he's 96, don't, come on, don't like, you know, like, too far, Pastor Micah, he's 96 years old. <laughs> You expect him to live until he's 130? No, okay, like he could live for another 10 years, but 130, 140, okay, he's going to be meeting the Lord here sooner rather than later, as are we all. You know, in the grand scheme of 10,000 years from now, 80 years is not that long. 100 years is not that long. 120 years, which is promised to us after the flood and after the days of Moses, 120 years is what God promises us, no more. So where will you be 10,000 years from now? Well, you're going to be somewhere. You're going to be thinking something. And if you're in the presence of the Lord, you're going to be worshiping Him. You're going to be in perfect paradise. But will you be kicking yourself for saying, oh, I had 80 years to worship and to move in the midst of chaos and In turmoil, and I squandered it. I was scared. I I huddled in a corner somewhere and just didn't let my light shine as bright as it should shine. I wish I could go back. Do you want to be saying that, or do you want to say I left it all on the field for Jesus Christ? Not one day did I squander away. Not one day did I let my light shine any dimmer than the day before. That's what I want to be saying. I want to be saying it's a bright light shining in a dark world. Amen. And as we dive into today's message, David, we've been in the book of 2 Samuel. And if you're new here, we've, uh, we go right through God's Word. We've been studying 2 Samuel. David's finding himself in a dark time of chaos. How he has moved through this turmoil, the Lord is getting ready to establish him as king over all of Israel. But it's been a hard battle for him hasn't been easy. And he could have very easily cowered in a corner somewhere and said, ah, this is, woe is me, this is too dangerous, this is too deadly, I should just go along to get along. But David didn't do that. He always ran where the Lord told him to run. And he always, whether it was into the battle against Goliath, or whether it was against Saul and his family, or whether it was against the Philistines, wherever wherever he was led. But that's the story of David in these first early years. 2 Samuel is basically broken up into three stages. You have from chapters 1 to 10, you basically have David's triumphs. 11 and 12, you begin to see David's transgressions. And then 13 on, you have David's troubles that come because of his transgressions. So he's not a perfect man, but he is a man after God's own heart. So let's pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts as we dive into what it looks like to carry the light of God into darkness. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our refuge. Thank you for being our, our light thank you for being our strength in times of trouble. Lord, you said in this world you will have many troubles, but take heart, you have overcome the world. And so Lord, we latch on to you, and we latch on to your victory today. Open our hearts to receive from you what you have for for us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, and everybody said amen. So there's this concept in scripture called the city of refuge, and it was a place where you could run to if you accidentally killed somebody you could go to the, one of these six cities, and we'll dive into that a little bit more here, but you could run to this place of refuge where you could live in the city and you could be safe from justice for, for accidentally doing something that you didn't mean to do because the law of Moses demanded that if you shed man's blood, by man's hand will your blood also be shed. But the Lord is a God of mercy. The Lord is a God of justice, but he also desires mercy as well. And so he, he set up this concept of a city of refuge. David is now living in a city called Hebron, and Hebron is one of those six cities of refuge. It's where he's kind of operating the kingdom, the southern kingdom of, of Israel out of, out of Hebron. Now, right now, Israel is in, a, is in a, a deadly civil war between the house of Saul, the son of Saul. His name was Ishbosheth. He was sitting on the northern throne. And then David, the rightful king from God's perspective, who was anointed as a teenager under Samuel's uh, dictation, and leadership. And, and now we see he's in the southern part of the nation. And there's this battle going on. But, but I want, as we dive into this message today, I want you to see the heart of David. Notice something interesting. He never once treats the northern part of the kingdom, the house of Saul, like actual enemies. He doesn't. Now, he might have to go to war with them. He might have to battle them. He might have to even kill some of them. But he doesn't see them as the enemy. He sees them as brothers. He sees them as part of Israel, one and one the same. That heart will begin, I think, sh- shines through in this passage of Scripture more than any other place in all of 2 Samuel. We see how D- David treats those who some would say are the actual enemy. And David says, no, they're part, of us. they're part of us. It's very reminiscent to how Abraham Lincoln walked through the American Civil War. Yes, he had to lead the north, into battle and he had the north had to kill many people in the south and the south killed many people in the north but never once do you get a sense that abraham lincoln was saying the south is the enemy he was always saying the south there, there are there are brothers and sisters there are sons there are they they are part of us we shouldn't be at the, in this war and david has that same heart he's saying we shouldn't be in this war we're, we're one nation let's follow god now David, as a, as a leader of the nation, he's also very flawed. And we're going to see a couple of his flaws start to come out in this, in this passage as well. Maybe, maybe hints of some of his leadership flaws. But, but I want you to remember, David being flawed, he was still considered a man after God's own heart. David, in his transgression moments in 2 Samuel that we will dive into here in a few weeks, you're going to see that David actually probably did things that you would never even consider doing as a human being. And yet God still used him. And so the imperfect nature of David or people like Samson or people like um, Moses or people like Noah or people like you could go on and on and on. All the imperfect imperfections of these, these characters tells me one thing. It tells me that I should be encouraged because God can use me if he can use them. Amen. You know, I'm in the world of politics and do a lot of political speaking. And it's really easy for my flesh to come out and say God can never use that person. It's really easy for God to say, oh, you can't use that person. They've, they've done X, Y, and Z. There's no way you can use them. And the Lord convicts me every time my flesh starts to go down that path. He says, okay, Mike, fine. If I can't use them, guess what? I can't use you. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know? <laughs> Conviction from the Holy Spirit. Yes. <laughs> right? But that's how, that's how we tend to be. A lot of times we tend to say, no, I'm high and mighty. I'm holier than thou. And the Lord's saying, y'all, y'all are, are flawed. You've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen? So praise God that we see people like David in scripture because it reminds us that we too can be used in a powerful way. So let's dive in. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 3, starting in verse 12. So it says this, and Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf. Now remember, Abner was the, he was the, uh, he would have been the Enemy commander. Okay, David doesn't see him as the enemy, but there are many people in David's kingdom that see Abner and Ishbosheth as being the bad guys. Abner is a bad guy by many people's viewpoint in in Israel at this time. To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. So essentially, Abner's kind of. He's kind of rejecting Ishboseth. He's seeing the weakness of Ishboseth. He's seeing the weakness of the house of Saul. And he's now, he's now placing his bets on who, who he thinks really is going to be the winner at the end of the day. Okay, now, does Abner have a good heart? Probably not. Is he, is he doing it more out of selfish uh, a- ambition and probably uh, just uh, he's trying to extend his life? Yeah, I'm sure he is. But yet he goes to David and he says, David, whose land is this supposed to be? David, full well-knowing, it's the God that Lord, the Lord has given it to David. He says, well, make a covenant with me, and we'll, we can end this thing. And he said, good, I will make a covenant, he being David, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to my face. Now, can we just say Macal? Can we just kind of like use the Hebrew kind of, because David marrying a person named Michael is a little weird, okay? Like, I don't know, like Michael being a guy's name, right? You know, I'm just like, okay, that's kind of weird. So we're going to say Macau. okay? Is that okay, Pastor Kathy? Is Macau she's, she's kind of the resident like, you know, Hebrew, you know, genius here. If I say Macau, is that, that's kind of the Hebrew slang, if you will. Okay, okay, we're going to go with that. All right, good. All right. <laughs> Rabbit trails. I'm sorry. You're going to have these all morning. Some, I just don't know what to do about it. All right. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Macau, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of Philistines. It just keeps getting weirder. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and this is why you got to love the Bible. It's like, say, what now? Like, we could gloss <laughs> right over that. And like, if you're a guest here and don't know what's happened in the past, you'd be like, Exc- excuse me? Did a uh, hundred... 100- he paid a price, uh, not like coins, but foreskins. <laughs> yes, that's actually what happened. Again, this was this. Remember, this was Saul at the time was trying to unify his kingdom, and David was the mighty warrior, and he wanted he wanted the he wanted to unify uh, the kingdom around a warrior, bring a warrior into his own household. So he could kind of say, "I'm the king," but I also have the champion of Israel in my house. So whoever goes out and kills a hundred ph- uh, Philistines in the way, you're gonna show me that you killed a hundred ph- Philistines is in a bag full of foreskins. <laughs> These people are weird, man. Okay, <laughs> it's like just like take a take a painter and like paint an image of them laying on the ground. You know, it's their version of a photograph. But a hundred foreskins, a bag of foreskins. Here you go, Saul. There you go. Here you go, Dave. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we shouldn't. I did not elaborate on this this much in first service, okay? So that's, I feel a lot more comfortable <laughs> with you guys. <laughs> You're welcome, Kenny. There we go. All right. <laughs> Moving on. And Ishboseth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. Okay, so she's married to another guy in the northern part of the kingdom. But Ishboseth goes and gets her. So this is interesting because Ishboseth is also seeing the writing on the wall, I believe, as well. He's, I think he recognizes he's a weak leader, but I think he also recognizes that the hand of God is against him and on David. Uh, but her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. So here, here's the picture is, Michal's with another man. She does not love David. Okay? She's, not, she's not enthralled with David. And David Nor is David enthralled with her. They don't really love each other. Okay? this is David won her in battle. And if you have your notes, you can fill in the blanks with the, the highlighted words, but, uh, but just keep that in mind. But the reason David's doing this is because he now is making a political statement. He is saying, I am unifying the whole nation of Israel under my house, under the house of David. The, the house of Saul is now becoming part of the house of David. So he's making this political statement. It, you know, And again, you kind of feel bad for uh, you know, Michal's husband in the north. I mean, He's now kind of the, just the, the, benefic- the beneficiary of this bad situation. You know, okay, you have David who's now calling back Mikal to come and, and be in his house, and he's, he's heartbroken over it, and Abner says, go back. There's nothing for you anymore. So these are hard times for a lot of people. This is not just house of David versus the house of Saul. These are, these are people all over the nation are getting impacted by what is going on in Israel at this, at this moment. Verse 17, and Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. So remember, so the northern part is called Israel, the southern part is called Judah. David right now is reigning over Judah, but not Israel. So now Abner is going to the elders of Israel saying, hey, you guys see the writing on the wall just like I do. So now then being, now now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And so what I love about this passage is that the favor of God is resting on David. It's been resting on David since the time he was anointed by Samuel. And eventually, that favor of the Lord upon anybody is going to win favor from man, even favor from your enemies. They are beginning to see we cannot stop this. This is a tidal wave of God, and we either have to get in, get, get, get on board, or we're going to be destroyed just like everyone else in its wake will be. And so my, one of my prayers, just as practical, practically speaking, when I get up in the morning, I'm like, Lord, I, I want nothing more than to have your favor today. I don't worry about the favor of man, because I know if I have the favor of God, the favor of man will follow suit. Lord, I just want to please you. If I can just put a smile on your face, if you can just pour your spirit out upon me today, I will have everything I need. Everything I need. But sometimes we forget to even just make that simple ask. And then we wonder, why why are things, why are people so against me? Why are things not happening for me? But when the favor of God is on your side and you're covered by it, you don't even have to try. and Things just start opening up. Doors start opening, paths start being formed out of nowhere, mountains start being moved, and you're like, whoa, this is pretty cool. And that's the goodness of our Heavenly Father. He wants to do that, He wants to bless you in that way. But you have to align yourself with Him and and go to Him and run to Him. And I love what Abner kind of says. He says to the elders, He says, Listen, you guys have known about this for a while. Now you just need to do it. You just, just do it. Abner was essentially the. The founder of the slogan for Nike. Okay. Like, there you go. (laughs) That's right. I wonder if anyone at Nike is paying his family royalties. I don't, I doubt it, but just do it is what he was saying. There's a great message from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and if you have a chance, you could go Google it and, and look it up, but it's, it's based off of this passage right here. And it, it says now then do it. That's the title of his message. How often do we know what to do, but we don't do it. We know, okay, God's over here. I should follow God. I should do what he's calling me to do, but I don't do it. And if you're like me, you're saying, yeah, I've done that many times before, but praise God, like I said earlier, you're also like many characters in Scripture, one of them being one of the greatest apostles that arguably uh, the world has ever known, and that's the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans 7, he says this, starting in verse 15. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. (laughs) It's like like wow but you're the apostle paul and he goes on he says but if i know what that what i'm doing is wrong this shows that i agree that the law is good so he's saying okay i know it's wrong i still do it but i know it's wrong so the encouraging part to all of this is i'm not really the one doing wrong it is the sinful nature living in me that does it my spirit is saying don't do this my flesh says to do it and i do it but at least i know what's right Okay, Some silver lining there. It's probably a a stretch, but he's seen the silver lining. Okay? And he goes on. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. You guys follow? It's pretty simple, right? (laughs) It's kind of like this schizophrenic moment in Paul where you're like, it's like flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit, right? But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying there's this constant struggle. We don't always do what we should do because of our flesh and our sinful nature. You will always be wrestling that. And now that doesn't even even take into account what the enemy, the devil, and his minions are going to do to you. It's kind of two verses one. Okay? It's kind of, and maybe you could add the world in there, too. So it's really, it's really one on three. You got your spirit, okay, which is aligned with righteousness and knows what to do is right, but now your spirit is battling the flesh, your spirit is battling the world, and your spirit is battling the demonic forces that are against you. Little outnumbered. However, remember, you plus God equals the majority. Okay? So that's, never lose sight of that. You plus God equals the majority. If God is for you, then who can be against you. Verse 19, Abner then speaks with the men of Benjamin. Then he went to Hebron to tell David that all the people of Israel and Benjamin had agreed to support him. Now here's why this is important. So there were 10 tribes in the north in Israel and two tribes in Judah, all right? One of the tribes in the north was Benjamin. One of the tribes that were, was part of Israel was Benjamin. Benjamin was the tribe that King Saul and his family were from, So Saul was a Benjamite as well as Abner. So there's a lot of loyalties. I think David probably full well knew that if he could win Israel, okay, he could probably do that, but it's gonna be hard for him to win Benjamin's support because they see the house of Saul as sort of their heritage. And that's gonna be really hard. So Abner goes and meets with the men of Benjamin. Now keep in mind, remember, the favor of God is working right here on David's behalf. David doesn't have to go meet with the bad guys you have a bad guy meeting with the bad guys to get good with David. That's what the favor of God does. It's not, David didn't have to go out and convince anybody. He's just living his life, honoring the Lord. And all of this is happening behind the scenes. How much do we forget that God, how often do we forget that God is working behind the scenes on our behalf all the time? And we think, well, we've got to go out and we've got to make this happen and this will happen and then that domino will lead to this domino. And the Lord is like, whoa, just chill. Let me move on your behalf. Abner's moving on behalf of David and I don't think at this point David really knows all the details of what Abner's doing, but he's working behind the scenes to even get Benjamin on board. That's, that's big. Verse 20, when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Okay, so we have Hebron being a city of refuge, and Abner comes into it, meets with the king. You would think an enemy and his troops coming in to meet with the king are not going to be treated very well. They might just be given a meeting and then sent out on their way, but certainly not sent out in peace. But David does the opposite. He brings them in, he gives them a feast, and then he sends them on their way in peace. Well, this, is, this is the heart of God, I believe, showing, showing out in David big time. God does not desire vengeance. Now, vengeance is the Lord's, is what scripture says. But his heart is not to bring vengeance on anybody. His heart is that none should perish and that everyone comes to know who he is through Jesus Christ. All right, He's got a heart of mercy. And David's showing this right now to the northern part of Israel. He's saying, I really do want to see unity here. Let's stop the fighting. We are brothers. Let's come together. And so he sends Abner on his way in peace. And now we see the difference between a secure leader like David, who knows his identity in the Lord, and now enters a man named Joab, who's David's top commander. He is the embodiment of an insecure leader. This is Joab's response when he gets back and he hears what just happened. Now, I want you to think about insecure leaders in your life. Insecure leaders are those that feel threatened by you, feel threatened by anything, really. If there's ever even one person that that like kind of makes a move, or even seemingly makes a move, maybe that's not even making a move, maybe just even seemingly makes a move, they get threatened. I've worked at, I've worked at a lot of churches, well, I've worked at two churches, and they're good churches, but I've worked with a lot of pastors on staff at these churches. I can tell you that Life Church has pastors who are not insecure in their leadership. Pastor Nathan's that way. He is not threatened by anyone, He doesn't fear losing anything because he knows it's all God's. There are some churches out there where, if there's one talented person on staff that comes on staff and the lead pastor begins to see the talent of this person underneath them, they begin to push them down and keep them from actually using their talent because they're afraid that this person will gain more favor with the congregation and eventually lead some sort of coup. And then they would be out. That, and think about how many steps you're already thinking down the road. Well, then this will happen, and that will happen, and then I'm gonna, this is gonna happen to me, and then my family, and this is what insecure leaders do all the time. They worry themselves right into really bad leadership. And Joab is that. He begins to think, uh uh-oh, we have Abner coming in. This is gonna go bad. He doesn't think about Israel. Notice his, his concern is not uniting the nation, Notice his concern is for his own well-being and future. Verse 22, Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that that was with him came, it was told to Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go. And not only that, he sent him away in peace, which means we are not at war with you, Abner. We're not at war with Ishbosheth. We're at peace. Go in peace. That's a a huge, that's a huge thing right there that we often overlook. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Keep in mind, Joab is speaking to the king. How often do you go into the king's court and demand answers? I mean, maybe once and then you're dead, right? Like, it's like, Oh, that didn't work out well for that person, right? But here comes Joab. He comes storming in to the king's courts and he says, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah, but David did not know about it. So it's playing out here. You have Joab storming in to David, because he's an insecure leader. He's threatened by Abner. He's like, "You, you did what? He's our enemy, David. And David's saying, he's not our enemy. He is our brother, we need to unify. Let's put down the swords. But Abner says, No, I'm not going to do that. He was threatened, more than anything, he was threatened about losing his own position. Now, remember, Joab and Abner are at, are at, are at odds because Abner killed Joab's brother, uh, Abishai. Uh, or, I'm sorry, Azael. And his other brother, Abishai, Joab and Abishai had, had, you know, there's a blood feud going on between Abner. Now, remember, Abner did, and we'll, we'll talk about this here in a second, but remember, Abner did give. Azael a chance to retreat. He warned Azael. He said Azael was, was tracking Abner and was going after Abner. And, and Abner said, hey, I don't want to kill you because I know who your brother Joab is. And this was going to cause a blood feud if I kill you. But Azael would not relent. And so what happened was Abner took the butt of his spear right through the stomach of Azael when Azael was behind him. And it just it killed him right then and there. So there is this blood feud, this, this vengeance mindset with Joab and his brother, uh, his brother that's still alive, Abishai, and they want to see Abner dead. And they cannot in a million years understand why David would ever send Abner away in peace. He should be dead. Vengeance should be theirs. They need to be the ones to carry it out. Now, I think this is probably, I said earlier, one of the weaknesses that i see in David was, I think, exposed here. Okay, and it doesn't mean David did the wrong thing. But you don't get a sense that David told Joab to shut up and sh- sit down. Which, in my opinion, as a strong leader, you would say, you are talking to me, the king, not because of me, but be- the authority God has given me. How dare you question what I'm doing right now? Sit down, shut up, and let me lead. He didn't do that, and I think you're going to begin to see that David tends to be a non-confrontational leader many times. If you're going to be in leadership, you've got to learn to be confrontational. Now that doesn't mean you're always seeking the confrontation, but you cannot run away from confrontation. Confrontation is a good thing because it brings to light, it helps healing. So it's kind of that concept of sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? Think of confrontation as the sunlight. If you stay away from the sunlight, there's gonna be this infection that continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And I remember I had a friend who, um, he had an affair uh, on his his spouse, on his wife. He cheated on his wife. And he loved the Lord. He knew the Lord. And, and I asked him uh, about a year after his, unfortunately, it destroyed his marriage and everything. It was just a sad situation. And I asked him, I said, you know, I said, what happened? And he said, Micah, he said, we stopped fighting probably eight years ago. And I was like, that's a really weird, like, like that led to your, your cheating on your wife. And he said, he said we, ne- we just swept everything under the rug. He said, there was no passion. There was no conflict. And he said, it just killed our marriage. And uh, I remember thinking about that, and I was like, that was relatively profound, and I think he recognized, he recognized what he did was a mistake, and that he obviously, re- you know, asked for forgiveness, but, but he realized the crux of their marriage falling apart was they avoided conflict at all cost, and they thought for the sake of peace, they should have no conflict. Now, remember in Matthew 5, the Lord says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called children of God. Okay, there is a big difference just so you know, between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper, okay? Peacekeeping is not godly. Peacemaking is. So when evil is in the world, okay, when evil people are doing evil things and and the devil and his minions are leading the evil charge of the world and good people, godly people, want to make peace, how do you make peace with evil? You go to war and you kill it, right? Right? And people would say, well, there's well, not a lot of peace happening right here. Yeah, there's not right now, but we're making it. Hold on a second. Goose, 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 goose. Okay, now there's peace. <laughs> 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 right? I mean, kinda. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, right? But that's look at look at World War II. Look at D-Day. One of the most bloody confl- one of the most bloody conflicts uh, in American history. The Civil War was the most bloody conflict. But it was it was this the whole world was at war. That's why they called it a world war. How did peace come? It took men, brave men, going into to the beaches of Normandy, storming the beaches of Normandy on this, the largest invasion, land of invasion we have ever seen in world history. And they had to do terrible things. They had to kill or be killed. They had to go in and destroy evil. Not peaceful at all. But what happened from it? Peace was made. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Why will you be called children of God? Because Exodus 15, 3 says the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He is a warrior. That means he goes to war and he battles evil and he wipes it out. Therefore, there is peace. If you want to be a child of God, you've got to learn to deal with conflict. And you've got to be a warrior going into that conflict. And again, it's not saying everything, you know, needs a bullet or a bomb. There certainly is a time for, for violence like that. But you will have a spiritual conflict. There will, be, there will be spiritual violence happening. You as a warrior, if you want to be a child of God, get ready to go be a peacemaker. And you end the evil with the power of Jesus on your side. David, I think, is showing this, I don't know if I want to, and you're going to see it when, how he how he deals with his children too. I just don't want to confront this. I'd rather just not necessarily deal with it. And that's, I think, showing this is probably when I'm studying this, now I could be wrong, but this is just my own personal opinion. I think this is one of the first places that you really begin to see that non confrontational spirit in David that's going to really come back to bite him uh, down the road. Verse 27 And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. Now it's important to know that the gate is where all the politics happens in any city. So this is a city of refuge. Okay, you kind of go to the gate. That's where the elders are. That's where all the leaders are. He he says, hey, come back here to the gate of the city. I want to speak with you privately. And there he struck him in the stomach, just like Abner did to his brother Azael. So that he died for the blood of Azael, his brother. He, He killed him just like Abner killed his brother. So there's a spirit of vengeance in the heart of Joab. There's a spirit of mercy in the heart of David afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, or who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. He's covering his bases, okay? He's basically saying, your house is going to be cursed by so many curses, you won't even know what to do with it, okay? Now, you might be thinking, I thought David was like, like, the mercy guy. This doesn't seem super merciful. One of the things that the Lord hates more than anything in my my belief, he he hates it when we mess up his spiritual pictures. His spiritual pictures that represent who he is and who we are and his love for us. When you take his picture and you warp it into something of your own making that's not of God, he takes it very seriously We're going to talk about this here in just a moment, but what is the city of refuge a picture of in the Old Testament? It's a picture of Jesus being our refuge. What happens when Joab takes Abner into the city of refuge and kills somebody in the city of refuge? He warps the picture of the the covering that we have in Jesus Christ. The Lord hates it when you mess with his pictures. David is feeling this sense of injustice because, not just because Abner was killed by Joab out of a heart of vengeance, but because it has warped the the meaning of what a city of refuge is supposed to be. You can come. He didn't want to kill Azael. He made that very clear. He came to David, was in a city of refuge. David gave him refuge and said, go in peace. And now Joab has killed somebody who had the peace of the king that warps the picture. Why does God hate the idea of, uh, of just this, this transgender movement? He doesn't hate people who are transgender. He hates what that spirit brings. Why does he hate that? Because it warps the identity somebody has that God has given them represents who God is in their heart. When you're a man, you carry a characteristic of God. When you warp it into your own image, you're warping the characteristic of who God says he is. Why does the Lord reject the idea of homosexuality? Because think about it in the spiritual sense. Spiritual sense, what is the picture of marriage? It is a picture being painted of Jesus, the groom, loving the bride, the church, coming together. He sacrificed, he lays down his life for his his bride whom he loves, and his bride submits to him and follows his leading. What happens when two men enter into marriage? There is no church involved in that spiritual picture. It's just Jesus loving Jesus. What happens when two women enter into marriage? There's no Jesus in that picture. It's just the church loving the church. You, when you think about it from a spiritual perspective, it, it kind of makes you go, whoa, I don't want to mess with the spiritual pictures that God has written and drawn. It'd be like me going into the Sistine Chapel, taking a brush, a paintbrush, and saying, I'm pretty good at painting. Let me go paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo was okay, but I think he got this part wrong up here, right? You'd probably get shot, okay? Or at least arrested, they would try to stop you. I mean, people would really jump over themselves to try to stop you. Why? You have no right to mess with Michelangelo's artwork. He is the artist. I am not. We have no right to mess with the, the art of the creator. One of the reasons David is so upset about this is because Joab has just messed with the art of the creator. So Joab and Abishai's brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Azael to death in the battle of Gibeon. I just hit on it, but you can fill in the blanks there. Abner was killed in a city of refuge, which is Hebron. Now, you may be saying, when did that concept of a city of refuge come into being? Numbers 35, during the time of Moses and Joshua and kind of the Levitical law, this is what the Lord says. He says, the cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. Again, he's creating that picture of saying, hey, there's got to be a place of mercy. I'm a God of mercy. There has to be justice. God loves justice. He is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. You can't have just justice and no mercy, and you can't have just mercy and no justice. What the Lord is doing, he's painting a picture of saying, I'm both. I will, I, we will bring justice, but I also want people to have a place where they can run to and be, be safe if they, if they repent and take shelter in the city of refuge. Now, I love studying the book of Josephus with, with these Old Testament passages. Josephus was a, a Jewish historian. He wrote a lot on, uh, that had to do with the history of all of these passages of Scripture. So I kind of read both at the same time. I'll be in 2 Samuel, and I'll also be in the book of Josephus, just kind of saying, what did Josephus see in all of this? And Josephus says of Joab's insecurities, he says, losing his power birthed the seeds of wickedness. The fear of losing his power birthed the seeds of wickedness. Repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And we'll get to this in just a second, but remember, pause. David didn't say, I got, I got, to, I got to deal with Joab. I got a problem. He, he recognized he has a problem, but he didn't say, Okay, this is what I'm going to do to take care of Joab. He says, The Lord repay them. The Lord take care of them. But David also recognizes this is that political moment. What we would call this a politically expedient media event. Okay? <laughs> That's really what it was. He got to the podium. He said, okay, I want, you know, he held a press conference. He said, I want you all to know that I am mourning the loss of Abner. Now, what does that do when all of Israel begins to hear that? What does that do, you think, in the, in the heart of those in Benjamin? If David wouldn't have gotten to that podium, you know, metaphorical, metaphorically speaking, if he wouldn't have gone out and said, I mourn the heart of Abner, what do you think the people of Benjamin would have thought? They would have thought, you lured him into Hebron, Hebron and you killed him There ain't no way we're going to, and yeah, you say you, like, you say it was your general who killed him, but yeah, you were the one behind all of this, David. There ain't no way we're unifying with you. It was a bad situation that could have politically destroyed any progress of peace, and yet David came out, humbled himself, and said, this is not my will, and to prove it, I'm not eating anything, To prove it, I am mourning. I'm wearing sackcloth. I am going through the whole mourning process. I'm walking behind the funeral. I'm showing up. I'm hugging the family. I am sorry. And in this moment, David, I believe, solidified his kingship over the entire kingdom of Israel. I think people said, man, we believe him. And we could get behind him. And we could could be followers of King David." David. David is a is a great picture of how you know we we can't really separate our faith from anything we can't separate our faith from politics we can't accept separate our faith from business we can't separate our faith from raising a family we can't separate our faith from anything David recognizes who he is in 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 the Lord he knows his identity as king and he uses that faith politically speaking to strategically lead the nation the people of Israel back into the right ways of God I just uh, had the privilege of, there was a BBC reporter from London who came to, he was in Indianapolis, and he he got my name because he, he was doing a story on evangelicals in the political world in America, and and so he, uh, you know, if you know anything about me, like, it's like, oh yeah, call Micah. He's probably the only pastor in Indianapolis that'll actually talk to you, right? <laughs> but like, how about that? And uh, and I joke, but it is, it is very few pastors that are willing to engage in, in politics, and um and so he comes, and we're actually, I was getting ready for the message today, so I was here at this campus, and so we, we met right back in the family room, and he really, he's really cool guy, he's an older guy, he's lived in London many most of his life, and um, uh, his wife is from there. He actually was born, born in Philadelphia, but then moved to, uh, uh, to London, and, and he says to me, he says, uh, he says, our observation of American politics is that every pastor in America is very much engaged in, in politics, and not only that, you're all Republicans, I said I laughed I said oh brother let me just tell you like not even close he's like really and then he starts to say he says because he's writing a story on he and his his opinion is that faith should be separated from politics now he's Jewish by tradition this guy was Jewish and so I stop him I say tell me how you do that how do you you remove your faith or your identity from anything you're Jewish do you remove your Jewishness when you write a paper? Like, do you remove your identity when you're, when you're making a documentary? How do you do that? I, and and he, he stopped. He said, I never really thought of it that way. He said, I can't remove my faith from, everything, from anything. Like, everything I'm going to do is going to be from the lens of who am I in Christ Jesus and what is he calling me to do? So if you are ever told, well, yeah, you've got to keep this area. Now, I'll use politics as an example because that's an easy one, separation of church and state, right? Like people will say, oh, separation of church and state. That means faith and politics should be separated. Yeah, good luck with that. Our founding fathers didn't believe that. They didn't believe that separation of church and state was a thing. You can't find that in any of the documents. The only place you find that is Thomas Jefferson in 1802 wrote a letter to a pastor saying, hey, there's a wall of separation of church and state. The state can't come in and tell you what to do. He never once said oh, we need to remove your faith from all politics. The very next day, he went to church on, on Capitol Hill, and it was the largest church in Virginia after he, wrote that mess, after he wrote that letter. So this idea of separating faith from anything, I use politics because that's easy for us to get our head around. You can't do it. You can't do it. And if you try to do it, it's going to go really poorly for you and those you're supposed to lead. And that's what I appreciated about David in this moment. He does not separate his faith from politics he says, this is who I am. This is who the Lord said I am. I'm going to use this moment that will be expedient for the nation, but but we're going to move in the right direction. And then the last part, David, of that last verse, what does David say? He says, I have a big problem though. I have Joab and I have Abishai. These are powerful men in my command, and they're now going to be out to get me. And instead of David going, oh, I'm going to do this, and here's the solution. What does he do? He says, I'm going to give them over to the Lord. How often do you give your problems over to the Lord like that? How often do I give my problems over to the Lord like that? Or is our first instinct to say, I can fix this, and here's how? David didn't say, I can fix this, and here's how. He said, I don't think I can fix this. These guys are way too severe, way too problematic for me to fix, but I trust in the Lord. The difference between a secure leader and an insecure leader is one who trusts in the Lord and one who doesn't. I think Joab and David gave us a great picture of that today. Now, what are you going to do with that? How will you trust in the Lord? How will you say, Lord, these are your problems, not mine. I give them over to you today, and I walk securely in my my identity as a child of God. You are my Jehovah Jireh. You will provide for my every need. I've got needs. You know it, Lord, but they're not my needs. They're your needs. And you supply all my needs according to your glory and your riches. And so that's, that's where, that's, as you go today, I just want you to kind of walk in that. Say, okay, Lord, make me this secure leader like David. And I want to turn us back to this, this concept of the city of refuge. I said it earlier, the picture was Jesus. Abner was killed in a city of refuge, which ticked off David. It made the Lord angry. Everything about that just warped the picture. But just because the picture gets warped by some people doesn't mean it destroys the picture. It's just, it, it, it messes it up for some people who are looking at it, but it's still the true accurate picture of Jesus Christ being your refuge today. Now, I'm going to invite the prayer team down, and if you have been in a place where you need a city of refuge, you've come to the right place because Jesus is that for you. If you need to run back to the city of refuge, have you walked like Abner? Have you walked outside the city of refuge and said, and said, I can do this on my own? And now the arrows of life are starting to hit you and you're like, what is going on? Well, come back into the city of refuge. The Lord is merciful. His mercies are new every morning, the Bible says. Come back to the city of refuge and find peace and hope in an amazing God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.